Catskill. Good evening and welcome to the local edition. I'm your host, Jason Dolp. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Coming up, we're going to have our regular weekly check-in with Spotlight PA, holding the powerful in Pennsylvania to account through independent investigative and public service journalism. And Spotlight PA's uh, investigative journalism has dug up some things. It's had an impact on academic research, health implications for the state, and more. to reporter Ed Mahan coming up in the second half of the program. But first, let's uh, get an update on what's going on in Albany and a checkup on New York Governor Kathy Hochul. Saying that it's long overdue, Governor Kathy Hochul today signed a measure that updates and expands the definition of the crime of rape. Karen DeWitt has more. Governor Hochul says the bill, known as the Rape is Rape Act, modernizes what constitutes rape to include various forms of sexual violence and assault beyond the original legal definition of vaginal penetration. Hochul says the acts are what would commonly be accepted as rape, but until now have fallen outside of the narrow legal definition. Today is about the survivors. It's about aligning the letter of the law with the pain in their hearts. It's about calling out violent, horrific acts for what they are so survivors can reclaim their power and dignity. And it's about backing them with the full force of our justice system so those who commit rape are charged accordingly. The new law comes just days after former President Donald Trump was ordered to pay $83.3 million to journalist and author E. Jean Carroll following a civil case where a jury determined that the former president sexually abused and then defamed her. Carroll had claimed that Trump raped her, but under New York's former law, the assault did not fit the definition of rape. I want to take a moment to recognize E. Jean Carroll for her courageous efforts to make sure justice was done and to bring a case against the former president whose defamatory and disgusting statements exacerbated a horrific situation. The legislature approved the measure in 2023. In recent weeks, Hochul staff worked with the Senate and Assembly, as well as the state's district attorneys, to refine the details of the bill in what's known as a chapter amendment. Senate sponsor Brad Hoylman-Siegel says the broader definition offers greater recourse for LGBTQ plus victims of sexual violence who were prevented from seeking justice under the old heteronormative definition of rape. Studies have shown that nearly half of transgender people in this country are sexually assaulted, nearly half, at some point in their lives. The numbers are similar for bisexual women and gay men. But before today, many of those assaults wouldn't be able to be classified as rape in New York State if the genitalia of the attacker and the victim didn't exactly line up with that that was in our old legal language. Assembly sponsor Catalina Cruz, who is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, says victims faced additional suffering under the old version of the law. For decades, survivors who already struggled to come to terms with what has happened to them 
have been told that the horrible criminal acts committed against them are now statutorily categorized as rape. This is because our state's current law is enshrined in outdated gendered notions of rape. Hochul and supporters say they hope the new law represents a societal shift of how violent sexual crimes are viewed. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network. Another ongoing story that we are following in Albany is the budgeting process for New York State, and that's because out of the budgeting process comes a lot of policy. That's how New York works. That's what we've covered here before. Well, Governor Kathy Hochul is proposing in her state budget to increase the temporary disability leave benefit for injured workers for the first time in 35 years, the first increase in 35 years, and she wants to give it parity with the state's paid family leave program. Again, here's Karen DeWitt. Temporary disability leave is for New Yorkers who are unable to work for a period of time due to an injury or illness that occurred outside of their job. The benefit is also eligible for people with pregnancy-related conditions. The maximum amount of money paid to a worker per week has been $170 for 35 years. When taxes and other expenses like Social Security contributions are taken out, the weekly amount is considerably lower. State Senator Jeremy Cooney says that amount is not enough for a household to pay their bills, and it needs to be raised. He's sponsoring legislation to do that. This benefit has not been updated since 1989. I always joke, that's when Taylor Swift was born, right? Cooney says he's delighted that Governor Hochul has incorporated many of the bill's provisions into her state budget. Hochul wants to increase the maximum weekly benefits over five years and eventually tie it to the statewide average weekly wage. That's currently over $1,700. Cooney says it will be easier to make the change if it's part of the state's multi-billion dollar spending plan. We're pretty excited that we're seeing this issue become elevated. Cooney says most people aren't aware of how little the benefit pays until they need it. He says it was brought to his attention from a constituent shortly after he was elected to office in 2020. He says single-income households and lower-income households who are living paycheck to paycheck have to make difficult choices about providing for basic necessities like rent, car payments, and food. We're allowing people who are injured outside of the workplace to have a wage that's living wage uh, so that they can provide for themselves and their families, they can heal and then rejoin our workforce. The temporary disability payments are far lower than the more recently enacted paid family leave program. That pays a maximum of over $1,000 a week. Rebecca Hanna, who lives on Long Island with her husband and two children, used the temporary disability benefit during both of her pregnancies for childbirth and postpartum recovery. She says, ironically, if she were to have another child now and her husband took paid family leave to take care of the newborn, he would receive significantly more money per week than she would. Let's say I needed to use disability for uh, childbirth and postpartum recovery again. I would get $170 a week. Meanwhile, my husband would get more than six times that amount through paid family leave. We're talking over $1,000 a week to care for me or to bond with our new child. It's not fair. It's not equitable. 
And it's it's a tear in our social safety net that really needs to be mended. Hannah says unlike most people who need temporary disability benefits, she had time to plan for leave at the end of her pregnancies. She cut her household's budget to save money in advance, and she also had access to a supplemental short-term disability plan offered by her employer, which not everyone has. I was lucky because it was a pregnancy-related condition. I knew about it ahead of time. And so I had several months to be able to prepare financially for a period of time where I wouldn't be getting a paycheck. um, And what I would be getting through disability benefits would only be a fraction of my weekly pay. While New York State pays staff to administer the program, the weekly benefits are paid through contributions from workers and employers. They would rise slightly under the proposal. Senator Cooney says going forward, he'd like the rate of temporary disability benefits to be tied to the rate of inflation, just like it is now for paid family leave. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network. And thanks again to Karen DeWitt, and thank you to the Public News Network, and thank you to all of Radio Catskill's supporters who support not just the work that we do here, but the work of the New York Public News Network. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we check in with Spotlight PA. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Hi, I'm Kusar Grace KG, host of the Music Emporium. Two hours of great music, right here on Radio Catskill. Sometimes I start out with a little bit of talk concerning things in the world for the week. Then I'll jump into some tunes that you will enjoy. Jazz, funk, blues, and more. So come and hang out with me the Music Emporium. Tuesday night, 7 to 9, right here on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to the local edition. I'm your host, Jason Dolp. Spotlight PA is a nonpartisan statewide member funded newsroom based in Harrisburg with the mission of holding the powerful in Pennsylvania to account through independent investigative and public service journalism. Radio Catskills partnered with Spotlight PA to regularly bring you their in-depth journalism and their investigative journalism isn't just making news. It's also impacting research into cannabis in the Commonwealth. Tonight, we're looking at a recent Spotlight PA article. It's called Spotlight PA Court Victory Leads to New Academic Research into Pennsylvania Medical Marijuana Program. So it's not just a story about the data and its implications, but how that data was acquired. Last February, the Pennsylvania Department of Health shared that data with academic researchers because Spotlight PA fought in court and won access to that data. It's a long story, and to help us understand it, Ed Mahan, reporter for Spotlight PA, is on the phone with us now. Welcome back to the show, Ed. Great to be back. Could you just explain what the overview is of the story, how this came to be? When when did the data first become available, and then and what happened next? So in 2022, we won a court victory against the Department of Health where Commonwealth Court ordered them to release the data about qualifying conditions in the medical marijuana program. So then they released it to us. We worked on an investigation about that data, studying it. And then meanwhile, while we were working on our own investigations, the Department of Health decided to, for the first time, share this data with its academic research partners. And so in February 2023, they shared this data with academic research partners across the state. 
and then to you know months went by geisinger worked on some of this data and then we also decided in december of this past december to make the data available to the broader public as well we had heard from uh, at least one person who had done a right to know request to get the exact copies of the data so that he could then study it himself so we decided to make it available to everybody where does the legal battle come into this? At what point of that story? Like, did, did you so actually have to go to court? Or... Back. I can, I can, like, so that starts all the way back in June of 2021, and I can tell you that story. But we reached out to the health department with what we thought was a pretty simple question. We wanted to know how many people qualified for the medical marijuana program because of an opioid use disorder diagnosis. And at the time, we were investigating a you know, very sad story about a man from Bucks County who was denied funding assistance for op- his opioid addiction treatment because of his medical marijuana card. There was a lot of confusion about the rules about addiction treatment funding and medical marijuana cards. So we were just trying to get some sense of the scope of this potential problem. Um, and, you know, the health department denied the request. We appealed under the state's right to know law to the state's Office of Open Records, which is an independent agency. That agency ruled in our favor, saying that the health department had an overly broad interpretation of the confidentiality rules in the medical marijuana law. And, you know, I'll just note, we were not requesting information on individual patients. We were were requesting aggregate data, anonymized data, so nothing would identify an individual patient. Office of Open Records ruled in our favor. The health department still fought against releasing this data. They then challenged us in Commonwealth Court, and we, you know, had a choice then about what to do. We were able to get legal assistance from Paula Knutson-Burke at no cost. She's with the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, and she represented us, and we ultimately were victorious in Commonwealth Court, which, and the judges there determined that this was public information that should be released. Wow. Okay. And so then that's, is it then that this information was released to academia because of that decision? Exactly. Correct. Because the department had not previously released this data because they had argued that the confidentiality rules prevented them from releasing this type of data. But after our court victory created, you know, legal precedent and it also created the judge's you know, order telling it's it's one thing for the health department to decide that they can release something, but then when you have a court telling you you must release something, then it's pretty clear for the health department that they can release this data without having to worry about um, any penalty for doing so because they're following a judge's order. So then that that makes these records public records, and you know, indisputably public records. And so at that point, they were then able to release this data for the first time. And the department has, in in recent months, they've, you know, pledged greater transparency. They've been releasing aggregate data, more aggregate data publicly. And, you know, our court victories are are part of that because they create the precedent that that makes it clear that the health department can do that. Wow. So so, uh, this is how the legal battle benefited others. Uh, what did it mean for your uh, investigative work as a journalist? So it really helped us get a greater understanding of the medical marijuana program. So I mentioned we started looking into this back in June of 2021. 
Um, and so while all this legal fighting was going on, you know, I was not spending every day doing legal fighting. I was spending most of my time doing journalism. And we had done a lot of investigative stories looking at the system for getting the medical marijuana card of Pennsylvania, some of the deceptive practices and and deceptive claims made by some companies about medical marijuana. And we looked at some of the weak oversight that is provided by the health department. So we had done a number of stories along those lines and then including ones focused on these un- largely unregulated third-party companies. Um, so right now, if you're a doctor, you can't advertise your ability to certify patients. But if you're um, someone who connects people to doctors, you can do that. You know, So I could start an advertising business tomorrow where I promise to connect you to a doctor, um, and that would be fine. So there's, there's these unequal rules. There's this weak oversight, and there are sometimes deceptive claims made by certain companies. Um, and so after we got this qualifying condition data, we were really able to look at how the program has changed over time. And the big thing that's changed is when it first started, anxiety disorders were not a qualifying condition, but they were later added at the advice of the state's medical marijuana advisory board and then approved by the a former health secretary for the state. And the number of people participating in the program really skyrocketed after anxiety disorders were added as a qualifying condition. And you know, if you just look at some of the, you know, back in 2019, there was 153,000 certifications created that year. In 2021, it was 385,000. And anxiety disorders are, are far and away the leading reason patients qualify for the program. I think, you know, I, there were, you know, when we look at Doctors in 2021 created more than 284,000 certifications based on a single qualifying condition. So those 284,000 certifications, there's only one condition listed. And usually they were for anxiety disorders about 151,000 times. It was anxiety disorders as the sole reason patients qualify. You know, could you just give us, uh, because uh, I personally have spent more time uh, on air talking about uh, New York State's cannabis laws. Can you give us just a, a thumbnail sketch of where Pennsylvania is as a commonwealth in terms of the legality uh, or illegality of cannabis? Sure. That, that sounds great. So Pennsylvania, we're one of the few states in our region right now where marijuana is illegal for recreational use. You, you, the only way you can legally use cannabis in Pennsylvania is through our medical program. and And there are two dozen qualifying conditions in Pennsylvania. So if I go to my doctor tomorrow, he or she can't just say you would benefit from medical marijuana. They would have to say you have one of these specific qualifying conditions and you would benefit from medical marijuana. So only certain conditions qualify you. We talked a bit about what this ruling meant and the access to the data meant for your reporting. Now going back to uh, the academic researchers in the health community, uh, your article me- mentions uh, the Geisinger Health System and their researchers. Uh, what did they find? Yeah, so uh, um, they what what we were really interested in when we heard about this was the fact that they were using the data. So that that was really interesting to us, the fact that they would even do it. And I, the... The way they were using it, um, they described it as the first study in the U.S. of the association between dispensary locations and qualifying conditions. And so we were interested in how they were using the data. And before I get into the findings, I'll just note 
this was published as a uh, preprint article, which means it hadn't gone, had not yet completed the peer review process. And the peer review process is standard in academic academic journals where you know your work is submitted and then you know it's reviewed by a peer who typically they don't know or it's not just typically but they don't know who you are while they review the work and so it's it's a level of rigor um that's pretty high and so this article is going through that process now but it's it's also fairly common to share some articles as preprints before those those findings are have gone through peer review so i just want to say that before making any definitive conclusions about their findings but uh, what the in this preprint article the conclusions they had was that greater dispensary access was associated with the proportions of certified residents and certifications for insufficient evidence conditions um and you know, they were still looking into the, the whether these patterns are due to differences in accessibility or demand, and that was unknown. Um, but but that was sort of the, the, the focus on dispensary location. So information that you got in your journalistic efforts might have an impact on actually how residents of Pennsylvania are served by these rules and locations. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea is that with this academic research, it can help people better understand the program. And, and if you better understand the program, you can identify flaws in the program. And, and hopefully, if you identify flaws, you would find ways to improve them. And that was, I mean, that's that's our goal as journalists when we're pursuing stories, is to understand how these systems are working, what's working well, what's not working well. And hopefully, that can inform the public and eventually policy. And then I guess Drexel University's Medical Cannabis Research Center also uh, cited your analysis? Yeah, so they put out a, uh, a research brief in April. Again, this has also not gone through peer review, but it was sort of summarizing some of the key things that are known and they, about anxiety and medical marijuana. And they cited our reporting in regards to the fact that anxiety disorders you know, are the leading reason patients qualify. And some of the things they noted is just how common anxiety disorders are in, in their research brief. They noted it affects about 31% of the population at some point in their lifetime, while less than half ever received treatment for their condition, according to their fact sheet. Um, and so, but it, I mean, they were also clear in their research brief about some of the unknowns that exist and in and, and, and talking with others as well. I mean, the, there's generally understood that THC uh, can increase anxiety at higher doses. Um, so that's can be that that's one of the big concerns that people have about mar- marijuana anxiety disorders as a qualifying condition is that there's not there's conflicting evidence about it about how effective it is, and there's some evidence that it can be harmful for anxiety as a quali- you know for the treatment of anxiety. What's next for cannabis in PA? There, I mean, there's a lot. There's the question of are we going to legalize recreational marijuana in Pennsylvania, which would be a major change to our medical program, because right now the medical program, these medical professionals act as the gatekeepers to this program. And so people, if you want to be in the program, you have to pay a fee to get certified by them. Um, that's that's one big one, and then we've also recently won access to data showing why individual how many certifications are issued by individual doctors in the program. So we're analyzing that data 
and looking for patterns, looking for trends to see what is noteworthy there. But that might be some uh, some topics for future coverage. But that's additional data that you were able to get. Are you are you trying to uh, to get any other data released uh, under Freedom of uh, Information Act or anything I guess else? We're, we're all we're always trying to get something released. But but this is yeah this is another significant this one this was a uh, victory for us. It was uh, this is a similar situation. We requested the data. Office of Open Records ruled in our favor, and then Health Department took us to court to challenge it. In this case, we were able to go through a mediation program, and we were able to use the past legal precedent as as evidence for why this should be released. And and both both parties agreed that if the judge, you know, issued an order saying to release it, then they would. And so they we we reached an agreement through mediation, and then a judge ordered them to release the data, and they have released it to us for analysis. Uh, Ed, before we let you go, is there anything else that you want folks to know? I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on and SpotlightPA.org. If you have any questions, you can always reach out to me at emahan at SpotlightPA.org. All right. We're talking to Ed Mahan, investigative reporter for Spotlight PA. And uh, the article that we've been discussing here is on our website at WJFFradio.org. And, of course, SpotlightPA.org. Ed, thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much. And finally, to close out the local edition tonight, we're going to change states and we're going to change the substance about whose legality we're discussing here because efforts in New York State to legalize wine sales in grocery stores have been fiercely opposed by liquor store owners for nearly two decades. The issue is back again this year. WAMC's Capital Region Bureau Chief Dave Lucas reports. Legalizing wine sales in grocery and convenience stores, along with the inclusion of streamlining liquor licensing and application processes, were raised in Governor Kathy Hochul's state of the state. The Democrat announced her intent to update alcohol and beverage control laws last year. Paul Zuber is executive vice president of the Business Council of New York State. There are 40 other states that have wine and grocery stores. 40 other states, right? So... It's working in 40 other states. Now, I will, I will admit that not every state's law and every, the way every state has done it is perfect, right? But there's a lot of different models to choose from. And I think when you look at the polling, the public in New York State wants wine and grocery stores. The general public wants wine and grocery stores. They want to be able to go to the grocery store pick up the groceries, and buy a bottle of wine. In a November Siena College poll, New York voters supported being able to buy wine in grocery stores 75 to 19 percent. The survey included at least two-thirds of voters from every party and every region. Opponents argue it would put many small liquor stores out of business and cost the state thousands of jobs. Joe Maloney owns the wine shop on New Scotland Avenue in Albany. I think as a small shop owner, it's going to have a big impact on my business. Um, We don't rely as much on the big uh, national brand items as some of the bigger stores do, but it would still, I think, put a dent in our business because people will choose to get those items at the store, the grocery store, while they're there. And so, um, well, I might not see a negative effect on my business as some of the bigger stores that are anchored in grocery shopping centers. I'll still feel the, I think I'll still feel the, 
the effect of it. Sponsors of the most recent bill, Democrats State Senator Liz Kruger and Assemblymember Pamela Hunter, argue the rules are antiquated and inconvenience consumers. If the legislation passes, Maloney thinks his shop may have a better chance of survival than similar stores across the city and county. Better than most stores, I think, just because of the customer base. It's a, it's a neighborhood. Um, it's a lot of walk-ins, a lot of people you know, walking with their kids, walking with their dogs. We have you know five colleges and three hospitals within a half a mile. And so I think, I think we're somewhat insulated in that regard, but I still think that, you know, we would, you know, feel the effects of, of the, uh, a lot of the wines I carry going into grocery stores. Who can, by the way, get them for a, a lot less money than I can? Zuber served on last year's commission to study reform of the alcohol beverage control law, which was tasked with determining how best to modernize New York's Prohibition-era alcohol laws. With no agreement reached on allowing grocery stores to sell wine, he hopes lawmakers can make a decisive move this session. It needs to have a clear, open and honest debate within the legislature. Democratic Assemblymember Pat Fahey of the 109th District in Albany is sympathetic to liquor store owners. And selling uh, wine in grocery stores, I have not supported that because we have what is a bit of an archaic system but we have already very defined uh, liquor store distributors for wine and hard alcohol. And uh, many of those are very small business owners. It's very restricted as to who can sell it. And I don't think it would be fair to allow uh, more corporatized uh, large grocery stores to compete with these uh, small business owners. Dave Lucas, WAMC News. Thank you, Dave Lucas. Thank you, New York Public News Network, and thank you for listening to the local edition. I've been your host, Jason Dolan. going to be back again tomorrow night to do it again. Do keep listening to us on air and always live streaming at WJFFradio.org. Daily's up next. This is Radio Catskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from JeffWorks Office Solutions, located right on Main Street in Jeffersonville, New York a newly renovated pet-friendly office space that rents by the day, week, or month with hot desks, sound-insulated rooms, Wi-Fi, modern amenities, and 24-hour secure access. Online at jeffworksjville.com and from The Cooperage Project, thecooperageproject.org. And listeners like you who donate at WJFF.